Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 68b, Deception at Joppa. In this episode, we recount a semi-legendary tale, the capture of the city of Joppa. It took place, supposedly, in the reign of Thutmose III, and became part of the legacy of that time. The capture of Joppa survives on a single papyrus written about 200 years after Thutmose III, and it is heavily fragmented. What survives seems to be the second half of the story. We are missing the beginning. Still, there's enough there for a lively tale. A tale of cunning, deception, and skill in warfare. I think you're going to like it. The episode is structured in three parts. First, the introduction and context of the story. Secondly, the story itself. And finally, an analysis of some of the characters that appear. Without further ado, let's begin. Let me set the scene a bit. Around 1472 BCE, regnal year 23 or so, Thutmose III was forcing Canaan into submission. After that unfortunate business with Megiddo, the region's princes and leaders were falling back into line. The Egyptian army had proved itself superior to the local ones, and by virtue of might, which usually makes right, the king of Egypt had only to stamp his foot, and the rulers of Canaan trembled at the thought. But one town, a town called Joppa, resisted the authority of the king. It was not part of the Megiddo rebellion, although its leader may have been inspired by that uprising. Either way, the town allegedly rebelled against its overlord Tutmos and closed the gates to the Egyptians. It's at this point that our story picks up. First of all, the town of Joppa is near the Mediterranean coast. Today, it is the suburb of Jaffa, Tel Aviv, in Israel. Secondly, the town of Joppa was absolutely part of the Egyptian sphere of influence. It was much closer to Egypt than Megiddo was, and it was close to the Mediterranean Sea. So the Egyptians had been visiting here for a long time, at least since the Middle Kingdom, and possibly the Old. By the time of the 18th dynasty, the rulers of Egypt considered this coastal area as part of their domain. Joppa was a subject city. Rebellion, therefore was going to be punished severely, if only the Egyptians could capture it. The Egyptian army had come to Joppa under the authority of Thutmose III, but the king himself was absent. Either he was on campaign further north, or he was at home in Egypt. Either way, the king had delegated responsibility for Joppa to someone else. This someone else was a general, who would become famous as a sort of Egyptian Odysseus, famed for cunning, skill, and deception in war. Tutmose's general was a boss. Let me introduce to you our protagonist, the general Jehuti. Jehuti, or Thoth, named after the god, was the king's representative in Canaan. He was a military leader, and to mark his status as a representative of Tutmose, Jehuti carried with him a scepter belonging to the king. This scepter was a mark of royal status and trust, and it was going to cause some trouble as the story unfolded. Now, Joppa was located on a hill near the sea. Like most Canaanite towns of any size, it was built with some kind of fortifications or walls. Nothing spectacular, but enough to keep out a raid or local bandits, 
For the Egyptians, fortifications did pose a bit of a problem. You see, the Egyptians never really learned how to assault a town as well as they could have. They never developed a sophisticated system of siegecraft like the Assyrians or the Romans. So, when they were faced with these kind of towns, it was a bit of a challenge, and the Egyptians often resorted to long, drawn-out sieges rather than direct assaults. So, when the story opens, Jehuti and his soldiers are in a camp, sitting before the walls of Joppa. They have surrounded the city, and they are waiting for the people to recognise defeat and simply surrender. Around the town, Egyptian charioteers roam freely, picking off foraging parties, cutting down any war bands trying to rescue the people of Joppa, and taking prisoners wherever possible. But still, the walls remain unbreached, the town itself is secure, and as long as it can stay that way, the Egyptians are probably stuck where they are. When we come to it, the story is sort of at an impasse, there's no assault or direct conflict. General Jehuti has brought his infantry and charioteers close to the city and set up a blockade. No one in, no one out. Inside the town, the people are wondering what will happen. Outside the town, the Egyptians are waiting for their enemy to recognise the situation and surrender like sensible subjects of the king. You can imagine how that was turning out for them. The story opens with a conversation. The leader of Joppa, who in the Egyptian style is called that enemy of Joppa, had come out to the Egyptian camp. Riding out in his chariot, accompanied by a charioteer, the enemy of Joppa has come to meet the Egyptian general. The two sit down and begin to talk business. The enemy of Joppa had some demands, and it was up to the Egyptians to accept them or not. Naturally, being a hospitable and cultivated leader, Jehuti shared a drink with the enemy of Joppa, and it wasn't long before they became more than a little drunk. Quote, Now, after a time they were intoxicated, and Jehuti said to the rebel of Joppa, I shall deliver myself along with my wife and my children into your city, but let the grooms drive in the chariots and have fodder given to the horses, otherwise an apir might pass by and steal one of them. Now, what Jehuti is offering here is essentially a deception. He's telling the enemy of Joppa that Jehuti is willing to surrender himself and his family, and presumably his army, into the care of the people of Joppa. In other words, he's offering to defect from the Egyptian army. In order to reassure his enemy that he is being honest, Jehuti tells the enemy of Joppa to bring his chariots into the Egyptian camp and to secure them, in case any roaming bandits, called the Apir or Apiru, might be in the area. Jehuti is playing a dangerous game here, but the rebel of Joppa is interested. Quote, Following this, the rebel of Joppa said to Jehuti, It is my dearest wish to see the great baton of King Menkepara, life, prosperity, health. This scepter which belongs to the king would make me greatly happy if I could see it. Then the rebel of Joppa offered a trade to Jehuti, saying, there is a woman here by the name of Tiut Nofre. By the car of King Menkepera, life, prosperity, health, she shall be yours today, if you would be so kind as to bring the baton of the king to me. Ah, now this is an interesting offer. The enemy of Joppa is willing to hear Jehuti out, but he has a condition. Having heard that Jehuti carries with him a scepter of the king, a staff of great magic and symbolic power, the enemy of Joppa is curious to witness this staff with his own eyes. 
He doesn't want it for himself, he simply wants to see it, and he's willing to pay a price. The enemy of Joppa offers to Jehuti one of his female slaves, or at least I presume it's one of his slaves, if not, that's pretty much even worse. Either way, he offers Jehuti a woman, in exchange for seeing the scepter of the king. If Jehuti will but bring the scepter to the enemy of Joppa in the camp and show it to him, he can have this woman, Tiut Nofre, for himself for the night. It's a curious offer. Jehuti has a wife and children. Will he stay loyal? Quote, Jehuti acquiesced, and brought the baton of King Menkepera, life, prosperity, health, concealed within his cloak. Then he stood up and said, Look at me, O rebel of Joppa! Here is King Menkepera, the fierce lion, Sakmet's son, to whom Amun has given his strength. And he lifted his hand and struck the rebel full on the head with the baton, causing him to fall to the ground. Good on you, Jehuti. Fight the moral fight. Resist these kind of sleazy trades. Realistically, Jehuti probably didn't give one fig about what the enemy of Joppa was actually offering to him in exchange for seeing the scepter. He simply saw an opportunity when it presented itself, and decided to strike down a rebel with the most powerful symbol that he had at hand, the symbol of royal authority itself. With his foe lying unconscious on the ground, Jehuti now had to act quickly. Quote, Jehuti put the rebel of Joppa in manacles, tightening them with leather. And he said, Let there be brought to me a clamp of copper. We shall make a restraint for this rebel. So the clamp of copper of four nemset weight was attached to the rebel's feet, and he could not move. Jehuti now put his plan into action. He caused the two hundred baskets which he had fabricated to be brought, and into these baskets he caused two hundred soldiers to descend. The soldiers' arms were filled with ropes and manacles, and they were sealed shut within the baskets. And to the carrying soldiers were given sandals along with carrying poles, and every fine soldier was assigned to carry one of these baskets, totaling five hundred men. They were told, As soon as you enter the city, you shall release your companions, and seize hold of all persons who are within Joppa, and put them into rope bounds straight away. This is where the story starts to remind us of a few other tales that have come down to us from antiquity. Jehuti plays a deception, concealing some of his soldiers inside baskets, and ordering these baskets to be carried inside the city, under the pretense of surrendering. It bears more than a passing resemblance to the tale of the Trojan horse, of how the Achaean Greeks, encamped before the walls of Troy or Ilium, made a great offering to Poseidon in the form of a wooden horse. But the horse itself was hollow, and inside were hidden many of the great heroes of the Greek army, including Odysseus. Of course, when the horse was taken inside the walls of Troy, the soldiers sprang out and slaughtered everyone, capturing the city for the Greeks, and finally ending the long siege of Troy. The story as we're told it here is quite similar. Jehuti conceals his soldiers in order to end a long and costly siege, and by means of trickery has them brought inside the city. The way he convinces the Joppans to actually let them in, though, that's quite interesting. Quote, now, Jehuti put the second phase of his deception into action. Someone came out to tell the charioteer of the rebel of Joppa, who was still waiting outside the camp. Thus says your lord to you, Go tell your mistress, be of good cheer, 
It is to us that Seth has delivered Jehuti along with his wife and children. Here, these baskets are the first fruits of their servitude and submission. Tell the princess this message, and inform her that these 200 baskets come from the Egyptians as a token of their submission. It's interesting that Jehuti's deceptive message specifically invokes the god Seth. Now this is a literary device for sure. There's very little chance that the actual words spoken at the Siege of Joppa survived in any form for the scribe to record. But it touches on the important theme going on beneath the surface of the tale. Jehuti, representative of the king of Egypt, is not just battling rebels. Jehuti is battling more than that. He's battling a supernatural threat. That is, the threat of disorder, of chaos, and of opposition. Seth, the legendary brother of Osiris, who slew that great king and then tried to usurp his throne, is a byword for foreigners in the new kingdom. Foreign lands are his dominion, his realm. Out in the shifting sands of Sahara, or the chaotic patchwork of Canaanite kingdoms, Seth flourishes. Wherever there is rebellion or disorder, Seth is there. Not because he's evil per se, but because it is in his nature to cause chaos whenever he can. He simply does things. So Jehuti, named for Thoth and representing Horus, Thutmose III, is locked in a battle not just with a human, but with the greater threat, the threat of disorder embodied in the god Seth. The fact that Jehuti, the wise one, overcomes it the way he does is testament to his power as a royal representative, and the fact that, on top of everything else, Jehuti is more cunning even than the lord of trickery, the mighty Seth himself. In other words, Seth and Joppa don't stand a chance. We now move into the final stretch of the story, as Jehuti's plan comes to its fruition. Will the Joppans accept the offering? Will the plan work? Quote, the charioteer obeyed the deceitful message, and he went in advance of the soldiers in order to impart the good news to his mistress and the town of Joppa. He said, We have captured Jehuti! And the defences of the city were opened up for the arrival of the soldiers, and they entered the town, and then they released their companions. They captured the townspeople, both young and old, and put them in rope bonds and manacles straight away. So the energetic arm of the king, life, prosperity, health, captured the town. The capture of Joppa was effected quickly. Once the soldiers were inside, there really wasn't much chance for the local townspeople. The Egyptians were excellent in close quarters. Even if they weren't so good on sieges, they were really excellent at battles. So once they were inside, and the troops, fully armed, had leapt out of their baskets, the locals didn't stand much of a chance. The troops now celebrate, and Jehuti is ready to inform his master of his great success. Quote, In the evening, Jehuti sent a message back to Egypt to King Menkepera Tutmose III, life, prosperity, health. He said, Be of good cheer. Amun, your good father, has delivered to you the rebel of Joppa and all of his people, as well as his city. Come, send men to take them away captive, so that you may fill the estate of your father Amun-Ra, king of the gods, with male and female slaves, who have fallen beneath your feet forever and ever. Thus, the story concludes happily. The capture of Joppa survives on a single papyrus segment, the verso of Papyrus Harris 500. It's remarkable that it survives at all today, considering the odds which are up against it. 
It's unfortunate that the very beginning of the tale is lost, but what can you do? At least we have what we do have. So that was the story of Joppa, the Canaanite port city that rebelled, then fell, to the cleverness and cunning of the Egyptian Odysseus, the excellent general Jehuti. Joppa, as I said, is called Jaffa today, and it is located in the port city of Tel Aviv in Israel. Ancient Joppa is well known to fans of the Bible. Supposedly, this is where the legendary Jonah boarded a ship trying to flee from God's authority. The apostle Peter supposedly raised a woman from the dead here, and cedar wood from Lebanon came to Joppa in order to be used in the great temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. Joppa, as a port town, was a place for travellers and transit. That was certainly how the Egyptians knew it as well. After the town was recaptured, the Egyptians turned Joppa into a supply depot for their army in Canaan. Granaries and storehouses were set up here to supply the army on future campaigns, and Joppa became a transit point for trade and military action up until about 800 BCE. So when Jehuti captured the city, he captured it pretty thoroughly, all things considered. The rebellion and capture of Joppa wasn't a huge event, but it acquired a certain status in the historical record because, one, it's a rare example of a military event not led by a king, and two, the methods Jehuti used to sneak into Joppa bear more than a passing resemblance to that Trojan horse, or to the tale of Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves from the Thousand and One Arabian Nights. Sneakery, cunning, and deception, valuable skills in warfare, and ancient stories thrive on the tales of daring leaders taking a roll of the dice and winning. General Jehuti seems to have kept his cool through all of these events. He played his cards skillfully and accomplished a great feat of trickery. As a result, the story is a showcase for his cunning and skill. Like Odysseus, or even the Roman general Belisarius, he captures a town by skill and deception rather than brute force. For this reason, he is often name-checked among successful Egyptian generals. Even if the event is a bit mythologized, Jehuti is one of the more famous names in Egyptian military tales. Once the story gained traction and became a popular favorite among schoolboys learning their scribal techniques, the reputation and fame of Jehuti became immortalized in elite Egyptian culture. The crazy thing is, the general Jehuti was a real person. In the winter of 1824, nearly 192 years ago today, locals and an archaeologist working at Saqqara near Cairo stumbled across a tomb. The tomb was of the 18th dynasty, and remarkably, it was completely undisturbed. The tomb belonged to a man whose mummy was found encased entirely in gold sheathing. Every limb, every finger, was encased in gold, stamped with hieroglyphs. Over the mummy's heart, a scarab was attached to a chain. On his wrists and fingers, bracelets and rings were made of gold. Everywhere there was the glint of gold. Naturally, this being the early 1800s, much of the gold quickly disappeared either onto the black market or into private collections. But a few pieces survived and made their way to various museums in Europe, Leiden in the Netherlands, 
the Louvre in France, the British Museum in England, all obtained relics of the general whose tomb was found in that winter of 1824. Today, historians have managed to piece together some of the basic elements of this individual's life. Thanks to surviving relics and the remnants left behind by his colleagues in Egypt, there is a good amount of material to make some basic reconstructions of the life of the General Jehuti. Not as detailed as I'd like, but we work with what we have. A silver bowl in the Louvre Museum is pretty battered and broken, but survives enough to show some beautiful artwork. The centre of the bowl is decorated as a flower, with petals fanning out from the centre, and around the petals there are five fish swimming counterclockwise. The fish are drawn so specifically that we can identify them. They are from a species called tilapia, a freshwater fish often found in shallow waters, ponds, streams, rivers, marshes, etc. Tilapia fish live in the Nile even today. Did Jehuti hunt tilapia? More than likely. If he spent much of his leisure years in Egypt, he probably engaged in river fishing, and spear fishing of tilapia would have been part of that hobby. Outside of the five tilapia is a third layer of decoration, a circle of twelve papyrus flowers fanning around the fish and the petals in a beautiful pattern. They are all linked together by their stems, making for a gorgeous symmetry. Petals, fish, papyrus, all the flora and fauna of the River Nile and Delta embossed on one stunning bowl. Jehuti also left us his canopic jars. They are made of alabaster and all bear the same face, giving archaeologists some confidence that they all come from the same set. If so, Jehuti either commissioned a set of canopic jars with a stylized version of his face, or he bought some that had been pre-made. It's hard to tell, and in the near future, I want to dedicate some podcast time to talking about the whole industry of death and funerary products. Basically, by the time the mid-18th dynasty came around, craftsmen in Egypt were producing funerary items to order, but also off the shelf. So you could obtain personalized items for your tomb, or go with generic products. I'd wager Jehuti did the first one. Clearly he was rich enough, but it's hard to say. Analysis of these canopic jars says that they were never physically used, so maybe he didn't mind too much about the objects and simply bought the basics. Either way, it's nice to have them. Other fragmentary relics include a statue of Jehuti, which only survives up to the waist. He is depicted as a scribe, sitting cross-legged with a papyrus spread across his lap. On the papyrus, there are references to Hathor, the goddess who, in Canaan, was known as the Lady of Byblos. The statue itself was found in Syria, near the town of Byblos. With that in mind, it seems like Jehuti, during his time in Canaan and Syria, commissioned a statue to dedicate to the goddess Hathor, which he set up in her shrine or temple at Byblos. This was a good place for it, and a public reminder of the Egyptian rule in this area. Byblos had long been a favourite destination for Egyptian traders and officials, who went there to get high-quality wood and goods coming from Cyprus or Mesopotamia. Byblos was a wealthy trade destination, and Thutmose III was not the first king to count it among his most important territorial possessions. If Jehuti was in charge of Byblos, well, he must have been very trusted indeed. All of these items, and there are other relics, like the scarab that went over Jehuti's heart, some wooden pallets for writing, and a set of alabaster jars, at least two of which may come from Crete. You can see images of these on the website, links in the description. 
Put together, they make for a beautiful suite of relics. Based on these fragmentary records, we can make a very basic reconstruction of Jehuti's life. Jehuti was buried in the region of Saqqara, so he probably was born and lived in that area. Egyptians, where possible, had themselves buried in or near their hometown. Jehuti then probably grew up around Memphis, or Men-Nefer, near the harem palace of Tutmose III. Jehuti was definitely of the social elite, because his parents were able to give him education as a scribe. This led to his job as a royal scribe, and probably helped him gain access to the ruling class. From scribe, Jehuti must have made his way into the army, because none of his titles say anything about religious or priestly duties, or any bureaucratic jobs. He seems to have been a military man from the start. Maybe Jehuti fell in among that new breed of hereditary soldiers, the Iwaiyut, or household troops, that were the real up-and-comers of 18th dynasty society. However he started, Jehuti soon came to the attention of the king, and found himself in charge of battalions. From there, it wasn't long before the growing military presence in Canaan offered a good opportunity for advancement. Which is, perhaps, how Jehuti wound up besieging Joppa in the event of its rebellion. Now, whether the baskets story actually happened is totally up in the air. It's a cool story, sure, but proving it is utterly impossible. But Jehuti himself was real, and his reputation eventually developed into a sort of Odysseus-esque character, wily and clever, who brings down formidable towns by the mere skill of his cunning. Tutmose must have trusted Jehuti, because he not only put him in charge of the capture of Joppa, but also gave him the title one who fills the heart of the king in every foreign country and in the islands which are in the midst of the Mediterranean. In other words, Jehuti, the overseer of northern foreign lands, was the guy in charge of Canaan, Palestine, Israel, and Lebanon during the time of Tutmose III. Under his authority, Egyptian troops took possession of towns, received tribute and tax income, and oversaw the safety and security of traders coming from Syria, Mesopotamia, Cyprus, Crete, and Egypt. As overseer of the northern lands, Jehuti probably lived somewhere around Joppa, Byblos, or Megiddo, that area. He probably took his family with him, assuming that the story is correct when it references his wife and child. Spending years in Canaan as a royal representative, Jehuti probably did take his family there. Heck, it's possible his wife was actually from Canaan. Spend years in an area, and you might pick up a local wife. People do it all the time. And we know that the Egyptians were not totally averse to marrying foreigners. After all, the legendary Sinue himself did it, raising a whole family near Byblos before returning to Egypt. So it's possible that Jehuti's wife and child were of Canaanite origin, and that when he finally returned home, he brought back a little bit of Canaan with him, I'm totally speculating there, but it's possible, and I love a good possibility. We don't know when Jehuti died. Because his tomb has again been lost, we can't say whether he outlived Tutmose or not. But when he did die, he went to the afterlife in true splendour. Gold all over him, high-quality artistic pieces around him, and a reputation that lives on to this day. The hero of Joppa, the wily Jehuti, clever like his namesake, and victorious servant of Menkepa-Ra. May he live forever.
the capture of Joppa in the reign of Thutmose III, a special event in the military history of Egypt, a fun tale of cunning and trickery in warfare, and a testament to the special legacy that this time period had in the minds of later Egyptians. Truly, the days of Thutmose III were the days of great warriors, a skilled and brave generation. From Canaan to Nubia, everyone trembled before the might and prowess of Egypt's brave warriors. So it was only a matter of time before the Egyptians decided to really test their own limits. Coming up on the next episode, Tutmose starts going after some proper enemies. No more rebels, it's time to tackle the true powers in Syria. First up, the town of Kadesh that had been one of the primary instigators of the Megiddo Rebellion. That city was still free of Egyptian control, and Tutmose was going to change it. All that and more coming up next on the History of Egypt podcast. See you soon! The History of Egypt podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Check out December's featured podcast of the month, which is the History of Egypt podcast. So, check us out. My special thanks to the musician Michael Levy, whose harp music is the music playing throughout the episode. You can find Michael Levy's website in the episode description. I recommend you check it out. He's done some fantastic reconstructions of ancient music and melodies, using instruments that are as true as possible to the ancient ones themselves. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd consider reviewing us on iTunes. This will help the podcast gain more exposure and help more listeners find us. If you're liking the show, or even not liking it, or you just want to say hi, please head on over to iTunes to give us a review. Good, bad, neutral, anywhere in between, I want to know how we're doing and what I could do to improve, or what I'm doing well. I always like a compliment.